You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Good morning. Good morning. We're in the book of Revelation. We're going to make all things simple. That's the motto of this class. Um, to take away the fear from the book of Revelation, that's my concern. Uh, let's begin with prayer. This Lord's Day, we are thankful to be in your presence uh, in the Holy Spirit. Please guide our thinking now together. I pray that this uh, 40 minutes or so will be meaningful. Uh, Lord God, please open your word to us by your spirit. And together we give you thanks and praise. In the name of Christ our Lord, amen. I'm going to read the first uh, eight verses, our focus of attention on the study sheet is uh, from verse 9 and following, uh, but I'm going to read to set the scene and make a few comments uh, from uh, last week's. Uh, I imagine I'll be reintroducing the class multiple times as we proceed. Uh, the revelation from Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. Now, this idea of revelation is unveiling, opening up. Uh, it is not the technical term of apocalypse. It is uh, the word Greek in apocalyptic, but uh, it's a word that was not defined by a genre at this point. The revelation from Jesus Christ, the opening up, the unveiling, the revealing, which God gave him. And God gave him is an expression used three times in the first chapter of Daniel. And I'm going to make a case this morning that Daniel was very much on the mind of uh, the Apostle John as he wrote this. God gave to him his servants what must soon take place. Now, that phrase helps to underscore what must soon take place helps to underscore already what may be confusing to you. The book of Revelation describes and is best understood by the first century church, by the church that experienced the Roman power and oppression, the church that suffered under Roman persecution, the church that was advancing uh, through the work of the Apostle Paul, and of course through the Apostle John, what must soon take place is happening right then. Like the four horses of the apocalypse is not describing a future event, but the four powerful aspects of evil that are stampeding in human life all the time. And so it is taking place. It's not what soon is taking place. It's not off in the future. It's not a futuristic. It contains the future, but it also contains the present. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. And that's kind of like a bound phrase. The word of God and the testimony of Jesus. That's like the fear of the Lord, which is a bound phrase. You can't take it apart. This includes both the Old Testament and the gospel, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it, take it to heart, what is written in it, because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, 
grace and peace to you, who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits. Remember we said last week that you have to understand numbers in the book of Revelation as symbols that speak a certain language. So seven stands for completion, fullness. The seven spirits is a way of referring to the Holy Spirit, who from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom of, and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he's coming with the clouds, a quote from Daniel. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, a quote from Zechariah. And all peoples in the earth will mourn because of him, so shall it be. And as I said last week, there's 404 verses in the book of Revelation and over 500 allusions to Old Testament scriptures. So in some sense, John is an Old Testament theologian that's preaching the Old Testament and bringing the Bible to this canonical conclusion this is the symphonic cascade of meaning that comes at the end that's meant to draw everything together so as to give the word of God and the canon of scripture its proper conclusion. And yet, as we've seen, I mean, this is a book that's neglected uh, that uh, I, th and I called it last week the devil's favorite book because the devil's convinced people not to go here. Um, and I have students that after we talk about the book of Revelation in preaching class will say, well, you know, I'm sort of, I'm upset and I'm angry because if I preach this text the way you've taught it, I'll be fired. Uh, so strong is some eschatological end times perspectives that people don't have the freedom, I think, to rethink the book of Revelation. That's why, and I think I said this last week, I enjoyed so much leading Ghanaian pastors, some 30 plus, through this book of Revelation in an intensive week, uh, five, six hours of teaching every day for a week. And we went through the book of Revelation. And you see, they didn't have the Left Behind series in their brains. They didn't have um, dispensationalism in you know, the corner of their mind. Uh, they had a freedom to see this as a prison epistle. A prison epistle of all prison epistles, I think. Um, so now we get to the passage that uh, there's so much that we could take in that prologue, but uh, let's begin with verse 9. And this is uh, there's three things I want to do. I want to explore how John describes himself. And to me, it's a beautiful description of a pastoral identity. And then um, we've got. Uh, so, um, anybody else? Thank you. All right. Uh, it's a beautiful description of pastoral identity. I, John, your brother and companion in the kingdom and suffering and patient endures that are ours in Christ Jesus. I was on the island of Pavis. You take that description apart. And you see how carefully crafted his own self-understanding vis-a-vis the church is. The second thing I want, I think it's very um, evident in first, the first chapter that Daniel and Daniel's experiences 
the 7th century BC prophet in Babylon with Nebuchadnezzar, you remember that story, was very much on John's mind. And then uh, the third aspect, I think John is defined by the vision of Christ. And uh, he unfolds that vision. There's seven visions of Christ in the book of Revelation. And this is the first one. And so that's we want to cover those three things. John's identity, the Daniel influence, and thirdly, the vision of Christ. And it's not just about John. It's about you and me and how we identify ourselves and uh, who is shaping our profile, our perspective. So it's not just John, I, John, your pastor, your apostle, but it's I, John, as a really average believer and who we ought to identify with. So reading from the study guide, verse 9, if you don't have your Bibles. um, I don't know, I've been at the Advent for four years now, I think. And uh, I don't think I'm having a great influence on people bringing their Bibles. (laughs) So if I were graded on that, I'd I'd get an F. you, I don't know, maybe you've broken me, and now I just, uh, uh, at least bring your device. Um, verse 9, listen carefully, this is God's word. I, John, your brother and companion of the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. The hair of his head was white, like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now, look, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So if you go up to number one, I'm going to suggest that there's seven aspects to John's own description of himself in those first uh, verse 9 through verse 11. The one, by beginning with the emphatic I, I, John, displays that this I, this identity that he has, is in Christ. His I is defined 
by his relationship to the Lord. And John isn't very interested in developing an independence from that identity. He is defined in relationship to the Lord. And as I think about that, the closest parallel to that I description is uh, the Apostle Paul in the, in the chapter we preached that was studied last week uh, in the service, where Paul says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And I don't know about you, but I think every person who's following the Lord Jesus Christ should be able to say that. By the grace of God, I am what I am. I have an identity. That identity has a character-shaping profile impact. I am what I am because of the grace of God. And his grace to me was not without effect. Uh, no, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. So whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach and this is what you have believed. By the grace of God, I am what I am. I, John. The second, uh, the name John underscores his personal story. Everyone has a story. But only one story redeems our story. I, John. Uh, and you know, you put your own name in that uh, and see how that helps to identify yourself. He's best known by a name, not by a title, not by a function, but John. Uh, And thirdly, John's self-designation as your brother rather than your apostle, your pastor, is relationally significant, I think, and underscores his identification with the family of God. Implicit in John's brotherly kinship is the family of God and the priesthood of all believers. You know that there is no higher vow in the Christian life than the baptismal vow. An ordination vow is not a higher vow. We never graduate beyond the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, we always stand in the need of mercy. Uh, that's what the gospel and what we celebrate every Sunday underscores. So John is very much identifying with. Uh, he's, he's not laymanizing lay laymanizing the pastor, but he's underscoring the costly nature of following Jesus Christ for every single believer. There's not two tiers. There's not the special elite tier of follower of Christ and then the ordinary average Joe, uh, no offense Joe, um, tier at all. Uh, there is one type of Christian, the person who does not just admire Jesus, but follows Jesus. Four, John revels in the challenge and the solidarity of his shared companionship in the suffering kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Christ. The fellowship of believers is marked by a cruciform life, a kingdom destiny, a long obedience in the same direction. 
You know, so often we'll hear the phrase that you want to be a part of something bigger. Well, John is a part of something bigger, but it's really well-defined. It's very distinctive. It's very specific. It's very much identity with the people of God, the body of Christ. That's the something bigger that we ought to be a part of. There's the solidarity, your brother, your companion, in the suffering kingdom and patient endures that are ours in Christ. You know, sometimes we kind of back into that identity by way of suffering. It's the suffering believer that begins to understand the solidarity within the Christian community and their need for that. Um, Five. The Christian life is rooted in time and place. There is a physical side to spirituality and a spiritual side to physicality. John is on the island of Patmos toward the end of the first century, not by chance, but by the sovereign will of God. He will say that he's on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Caesar thought that he was on the island of Patmos because of Caesar. The authorities thought that he was on the island because they had sent him there. But in uh, you know, in the, the shared way of expression that the Apostle Paul would use as well, they're prisoners because of Christ Jesus. So what would constitute a really difficult circumstance and situation, the Apostle, the believer, sees it as orchestrated by God. Even though there's secondary causes, there's tertiary reasons, but John sees God as sovereign in his life. And it's not by happen chance, and it's certainly not by political will that he is there. He is there because God, and it's rooted. I mean, I think it's great that he said, I'm on the island of Patmos. Ministry takes place in a situation with real people in real circumstances. Uh, the Bible does not project a kind of talking head Christianity, a kind of just cognitive, conceptual, abstract Christianity. It roots Christianity in, in families, in, among persons, in a neighborhood, uh, within a church. Uh, and when that's not taking place, we feel, I think, somewhat um, uh, disoriented when it's not really rooted, when it's not placed, when it's not among people. There's so much more on each one of these we could talk about. Number six, John's situational awareness is grounded in the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. His rationale for living is neither willful nor whimsical. It is neither humanistic nor accidental. John was not on the island of Patmos because of Caesar, although the emperor... I just said that emperor undoubtedly thought so. John was on Patmos because of Christ. So John causes us to ask ourselves if our own sort of life situation and trajectory is willful or whimsical. Um, is there a sense in which the Lord truly does guide and we receive and we see life as an expression of the grace that God has given. Uh, that situational awareness. 
Number seven, John found the challenge, inspiration, and significance of life and worship in the Spirit and hearing the voice of God. He was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. I don't think it's just pastors who should feel that way. I think it's all of us who should feel that way. We're in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Any comment that you want to make on these seven? I'm suggesting that these uh, ways of these phrases within this close, short description of John are uh, are expandable theologically in taking in the reality of who he is in Christ, and that it's not just a pastoral identity. I probably mistitled this. It should be the believer's identity. Daniel, Tom. One quick question. Uh, when, you, when he says he was uh, on the island of Patmos because of the word of Christ, I mean, one could look at that as saying, well, he was a faithful witness, so of course the natural outcome would be that the authorities would you know, try to get rid of him. That, do you think that's for the proper view or the view that God is sovereignly manipulating things so that that happens. Or is there a difference? (laughs) (laughs) That's a complicated question. Um, On one hand, I think Rome tried to silence him without without him becoming a martyr. So put him off in Patmos, a place where they did put prisoners. Um, So rather than make him a hero, you know, they just get get him out of the way. Uh, from a humanistic standpoint. Now, we can look at this and say, well, because uh, John is still alive and hasn't been killed like so many of the apostles who um, we don't have their stories, but who ended their life in Rome, for example, Peter, uh, we have the book of Revelation. We have the canonical conclusion to the Bible. John has been given time, and we've been given the scriptures, and uh, I think that served God's purposes primarily, maybe secondarily. Uh, Caesar's logic was that he wouldn't be made a hero. I guess that's, do you have any comeback to that thought? Well, I've, I've just been noticing for a long time that Americans like kind of magical thinking, that God will do something magical when, from my point of view, it would be much simpler for him to just use the natural things that will happen and tweak here and there where necessary. I mean, why does he need to set off an atom bomb when, you know, a little nudge will accomplish? You're a scientist, right? Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Well, that's good. I think your epistemology is uh, probably in line. Einstein said, Something to the effect that, you know, we couldn't be able to do science unless there was an inner harmony to nature. That there was a comprehensibility about it. And uh, that quote came up in looking at Revelation 1, Einstein's quote of the inner harmony of nature. But there's not only an inner harmony of nature. The Apostle John would be saying that there's an ultimate convergence of history. 
And it's interesting to put, I think, those two together, that there's an inner harmony to the nature of things, and God has sovereignly directed an ultimate convergence of all things, of all time, of all people. And that's a, I mean, we're really talking about uh, kind of meta issues here. And our own personal lives, however, are very valuable in that big picture understanding. Anyone else? Thank you, Tom. Uh, the second aspect of uh, this morning that we've had about five minutes to do is the story of Daniel. And uh, if you remember back to your uh, Bible story days, uh, it's, it's Daniel's a very an adult book that I think needs to be understood and studied. Uh, but you remember that Babylon conquered Jerusalem and took back the brightest and smartest back to Babylon to be indoctrinated and re-educated. Daniel was one of those uh, Hebrew young men in his 20s, 605 BC, when he was taken back. Uh, the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were also friends that you know from Bible story days. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. And uh, he called in his... Uh, magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers. And he said, tell me the dream. Tell me what the dream means. And they said, well, fine. Give us the dream. And Nebuchadnezzar said, no. You tell me what my dream was. And then what it means. And their reaction to Nebuchadnezzar is really interesting. Nobody can do that. Nobody can understand. You have to tell us the dream first. Now, it's interesting. Scholars debate whether Nebuchadnezzar did that as a test to see whether or not they actually could understand. Or whether or not Nebuchadnezzar, like many of us, when we've dreamed a dream, don't remember the dream. But we wake up knowing we've dreamed. But in any case, um, they respond by saying, no, no way can we tell you the dream. That's not for us to say. The astrologers answered the king, there's no one on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among humans. We can't answer your dream. We can't come up with that. That's too hard for us. Only the gods can do that. I find this really interesting, and I don't have it really down sufficiently to probably explain it. Uh, but there's a lot of talk about us living in the secular age as opposed to the age of enchantment, the age of Daniel's time, the age where there's gods and dreams and heavens and hells and, and all of that. We live in a secular age now that has secularized all of that out where that isn't true. But it's interesting, these astrologers, enchanters, magicians come up to the limits. And they say, you know, we can't know this. That's a knowledge beyond us. Now, that's the malaise of transcendence. We can't figure it out. It's beyond us. We live in an age that's the, mal the malaise of the imminent that we have reduced all of that. There is nothing to know. 
There's nothing to know out there. Uh, so you can't know that because there's nothing out there. There's nothingness. They had everything. <laughs> we have nothing. And Daniel, uh, Nebuchadnezzar puts out a death edict to kill everybody that's involved in sort of the Wiseman classification. And Daniel, uh, by way of the chief uh, advisor, um, asks Nebuchadnezzar for time and that he will, uh, he will try to answer the Nebuchadnezzar's dream, but he needs time. He comes back and meets with his Hebrew friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and says, pray. Pray for the mercy of God. Pray that God will reveal this to me. And that night, Daniel has the vision, the dream, that Nebuchadnezzar had. And I find it just striking that uh, Daniel breaks into a psalm of praise in the morning. Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we asked of you, and you have made known to us the dream of the king. So Daniel comes into Nebuchadnezzar and he says, No wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner, no motivator, no influencer, no accountant, no engineer, no scientist, nobody can discover this, but God has given it. And that, that is foundational to the Christian faith that indeed God has spoken. Spoken beyond the imminental plane, spoken beyond any kind of age of enchantment, that God has delivered, he's spoken. Now what's interesting is, you know, too, that uh, in the early church, Christians were thought to be atheists because they didn't go along with this sort of uh, polytheism, God's everywhere and in that and everywhere. They were judged as atheists because they didn't believe that. God in heaven who reveals mysteries, he's shown the king, he has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the days to come. I think this is very much on John's mind in writing the book of Revelation, that what Daniel experienced he has experienced. And what John has experienced is in line with, um, with, what, uh, with what Daniel understood as well. And that's why Daniel 7 is our reference text for John's vision in the book of Revelation when he talks about his first vision of Christ. And I'm looking back at Revelation because, well, our time's gone, isn't it? I feel like in this class it takes me about 20 minutes to warm up. And that's about half our time right there. Uh, and you'll help me if I see more familiar faces on the third week. You know what I mean? Uh, or else I'm going to feel like I keep reintroducing the book of Revelation to a movable feast of adventures. Um, <laughs> This is a powerful book. I'll stay in it for a long time. We'll stay in it for four weeks, but then through the fall as well. Um, you'd also help a great deal 
start reading it. Look at it. See what you think. And then you can come with your questions. And we'll take up the vision of Christ next week. It's going to be a, it's going to be a slow meal, obviously. Let me close with prayer. Lord God, I thank you for your goodness to us and that you do reveal mysteries. That our knowledge is not limited to what we can acquire, but our knowledge really rests in what you have given to us and revealed. We thank you that your reason, your footprint, your fingerprint is all through nature and history. And we ask that uh, you'd give us by your spirit the ability to understand and trust what you have revealed. In the name of Christ our Lord, amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.